Beloved, if you turn with me in your Bibles to, uh, to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, and also Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, as we continue unpacking the seventh commandment, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 20. And verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And then turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to this text, one that we have been referring back to time and again over the last several months, and one that is key as we understand marriage and human sexuality, we ask, Lord, you'd give us wisdom and grace and disciple us, Lord, and teach us, instruct us, your redeemed children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> A well-known Christian writer recently commented that today we are witnessing nothing less than a total revolution in sexual morality. Indeed, indeed what we are now experiencing is not the logical outwork is, is not the logical outworking of the West Christian influence teaches on human sexuality, but the repudiation of them. The repudiation of them. Beloved, what is happening all around us is a moral crisis that cannot be ignored. Everything is changing, and is changing so fast. So how do we respond biblically as Christian believers in the wake of this sexual revolution? We learned uh, last time uh, we were together, last Lord's Day, that the first thing we must do is know the truth. We must know the truth about what God's Word teaches us about marriage and sexuality. You say, well, Pastor, we already know all that stuff. Do you? Do I? Do we need to be reminded of these things in this day and age when there is a tsunami called the sexual revolution pouring over our culture, into our institutions, into our schools, and into the public square, and through our screens, and everywhere we look, there is sexual revolution. And there are those who are seeking to gaslight Christian believers into thinking that we must be crazy for holding to traditional Christian morals and sexuality, that which seemingly all of our culture believed just 10, 15 years ago. 
This is the place in which we live. This is the time in which we live. Everything is changing so fast. We need to know the truth. We must know the truth about marriage and sexuality from God's word. Our children need to know the truth about God's word. I was sitting with uh, Scotty Anderson, the associate uh, pastor at Woodruff Road PCA. He's been a youth pastor there for 20 years. And if you've been a youth pastor for 20 years, you have seen sort of the evolving nature of culture and the way that the sexual revolution has risen because you're always thinking about how to disciple youth, right? I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I'm glad I didn't have cell phones back then because of some of the goofy stuff I did at the youth retreats. But I I remember being with the youth, and I remember writing the parents' letters telling them, hey, I'm going to be talking about human sexuality uh, in these sessions with the junior high and the high schoolers, and so if you don't want them there, then you might want to think twice about this because this is what I'm going to be talking about. And I was talking to Scotty about this, Uh, yesterday, and he said, I don't write those letters anymore. (laughs) He said, I pretty much think parents must be crazy if they don't want their pastors talking to their kids about proper biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality, with, with the proper limits, of course. But we are in a moral crisis in our day. And so last time we were together, we went back to the beginning, Genesis, to creation, to learn about God's establishing of of marriage at creation, to be reminded of marriage and sexuality and their their God-given purpose. We were reminded from Genesis 1 and 2 that on the sixth day of creation, God created man, and he created man in his own image and placed him in the midst of a vast garden to exercise dominion over it. By the way, you perhaps have been hearing some similar themes over the last few weeks about the Imago Dei and about creation and about first things and about Genesis 1 through 3. And in my opinion, there's nothing more important that we need to be thinking about today than these foundational things because what is Satan doing right now? He is attacking the very foundations of our Christian faith. And so we need to go back to the beginning. We've been doing this as we've been unpacking the Ten Commandments, in particular, commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so God placed man in the, the midst of this vast garden to exercise dominion over it, but man was alone, and it wasn't good for him to be alone. There were all kinds of animals around, but there was not a helper fit for him, someone to come alongside him, to share his life with, to worship God with, to become one in flesh with, and with whom he could be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, God, quote, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. From that rib, God created woman. And then, in one of the most beautiful and tender moments in all of history, God brought her to the man. God brought Eve to Adam. It was then declared that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and Eve were created to be together. They were fit for each other, emotionally, anatomically, and spiritually. God, the sovereign God over all, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who is all-wise, He instituted marriage between a man and a woman to bring glory to himself and to reflect the beautiful relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. We must get this, that when you seek to unsettle And to change that which God has instituted, that which God has designed and created and called good, and uses as an analogy to describe Christ and the church, his bride, if you seek to unsettle that as it concerns marriage, you are attacking the very analogy of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. It's the same kind of thing when you think of the so-called side 
B gay Christian movement or even the side A gay Christian movement. If a person describes himself as a gay Christian and we believe as we considered this morning that, that when we are united to Christ, we're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, right? You believe that, amen? If we are being conformed to the image of Christ as those who are united to Christ, but then there are those who call themselves or identify as a gay Christian, then wouldn't it then logically make sense to say that there could be a gay Christ? If you're being conformed to Christ's image and he is the Holy One, how could we identify with sin and hold on to sin and not repent of this sin and not forsake this sin as we are brought into union with Christ? We cannot stay wedded to sin if we are wedded and united to Christ. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so we recognize that God's design is perfect as he created Adam and Eve to be together and to reflect that beautiful relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. We unpack this foundational biblical narrative in Genesis 2 to remind us that marriage, sex, and sexuality were created by God and thus should always be understood and practiced on God's terms, not on man's, not on the culture's, not on the government's, not on some professor in, in some prestigious institution that, that decides that they're going to embrace this this new teaching and this, this cultural ideology, and they're going to begin pressing it into their students. We don't believe that. We believe in what God has said through his word and that which has been believed for millennia. What we are experiencing today is, is something like that has never been experienced before, and it, it's... Um, it's spread so much because of the use of technology and the internet. God is the designer and architect of marriage and sexuality. He holds the blueprints. We don't. No one should pretend to have the liberty to change what God has called right and good and blessed. Therefore, in the midst of the profound sexual confusion of our day, in the midst of the, the sexual revolution, which is changing the cultural landscape of our nation and our, our culture with hurricane-like strength, we must cast our anchor afresh upon God's unchanging and eternal truth. With courage, renewed conviction, and loving humility, we must hold fast to God's truth in our post-Christian culture. Again, last week we sought to do that by taking a positive look at marriage, sex, and sexuality to be reminded of God's beautiful design and purpose for the covenant of marriage and for the beautiful expression of sexual intimacy within marriage. We learned that the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about the nature and role of sex and that quite the opposite of having a prudish view of sexuality, the Bible celebrates it when it is expressed within the context of a lifelong covenant marriage relationship. Last week, we spent some time unpacking Genesis 2, again, with a positive view of marriage. This week, we are going to highlight some of the departures from God's design, some of the departures from God's design. My plan is not only to show from Scripture what God's Word teaches about these departures, but also to communicate the hope, forgiveness, and healing that is extended in the gospel. You know, as parents, sometimes we just are a bit mystified about how to respond to everything that is taking place. Well, it is, it is on the church to make it a part of the discipleship of the church to make clear the things that God's word makes clear, to not cower in fear about what some might think, but to teach the truth without hesitation and clearly and cogently for uh, the people of God. Sometimes as parents, we don't know what to do, right? I remember 15 years ago when a lot of this was just emerging. Um, 
uh, there was a friend of ours and, and uh, she, she had a pretty good sense of humor and uh, she was telling us that she was at uh, the Target and these two men walked by holding hands and uh, the, her son was looking at them and he was very confused about this and uh, she quick-wittedly said, uh, uh, well, that his friend is blind and he's, he's taking him around the store because uh, he can't see anything. But we must admit, we, we don't always know what to say. And uh, even with someone, someone struggling with same-sex attraction, should, if they have a sense of humor, they will appreciate that story. We, we, don't, we don't know a lot of times what to do and how to respond, but one thing we do know to do is to look to God's word. And, and it's so important as we come to this that we recognize, so important, that we recognize that as we consider uh, the sin of sexual deviancy and departures from God's design in marriage and sexuality, that we recognize that this is not the only sin mentioned in the Bible. We're not picking on this one sin and making it all about this one sin. I think that there are those who do. And there's kind of this self-righteous Phariseeism that, oh, well, this, these people are doing this and that, and, and, uh, and yet they've got things over here that are just a complete disaster. And their own lives are unwilling to deal with but you notice in verses 28 through 32 in Romans 1, there is a very long list of sins that are mentioned. But as we consider marriage and human sexuality, as we consider the seventh commandment and what we will see next time encompasses so many aspects of marriage and sexuality, we want to be able to deal with this and to understand what God's word teaches. The first thing we ought to recognize is that God's wrath is, is revealed. It's, it's, it's being revealed. Um, some people say, well, if things keep going in America, God's judgment is going to come. No, God's judgment has come and is continuing to come. That's what it says in verse 18. Look there with me. For the wrath of God is revealed or is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The Apostle Paul introduces this letter to the church in Rome by clearly communicating that he was set apart to preach the gospel. We've been learning that on Sunday mornings. He was set apart to proclaim to both Jew and Gentile that salvation in Christ is for all who believe. In other words, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you look like, what you've done, Mercy and forgiveness are granted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah sent from heaven, who fulfilled the requirements of God's law, paid the debt of our sins on the cross, and then rose from the dead on the third day. If anyone were to ask Paul what the main point of his letter was, he would say the good news that there is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But that good news only makes sense, as we've been learning, and as we learned this morning, in light of the bad news. Salvation only makes sense if we are saved from something and saved to something. That's why the Apostle Paul spends two and a half chapters expounding on the depravity of mankind. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile. Look at me now at verse 18 again, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here we are reminded that God does not take sin lightly. Sometimes we do, especially when it has to do with our own sin. Sometimes we take sin lightly. God never takes sin lightly. It is totally outside of his holy character, to ever take sin lightly. He does not shrug his shoulders at sin. He does not chuckle at sin. No, his wrath is being revealed. It is being poured out because of sin. It's being revealed in part now and will be revealed in full later. What is God's wrath? What is it? One writer calls it God's settled indignation. His settled indignation. Another calls it a, quote, deeply personal abhorrence for evil. It is repulsive to God because of his holy nature. 
if sin was not repulsive to God, he would not be perfectly holy and perfectly just. God is not neutral and never is neutral when it comes to sin. God is revealing his wrath. Why? Well, look at the text. Because of ungodliness, unrighteousness, and a suppressing of the truth. That conscious, selfish, stubborn, and willful pushing down of what one knows is right in order to do that which we deep down know is not right. It's an attempt to suppress the truth that might challenge our sinful lifestyles. God's wrath, as we read earlier, is being revealed because while God's glorious creation is seen by all and his divine nature and power are clearly manifested to all, mankind does not worship God or give thanks to him. Rather, we exchange the glory of God for idols, idols representing ourselves and birds and animals and creeping things. As we think about idolatry around uh, the world, we, we see this expressed through the statues and, and, and the forms of worship that are carried out, truly worshiping images depicting man and animals and creeping things. Here it seems Paul is alluding to the early chapters of Genesis, using creation itself as the backdrop for demonstrating how far man has fallen into sin. God's wrath is revealed because mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. At this point, we need to make something abundantly clear. This section of Romans is not primarily about the sin of unnatural sexuality, though it is certainly a major theme. The major point here is man's rejection of God for something else. Man's rejection of God for something else. Man's rejection of God for idols and earthly pleasures. A rejection of the truth about God for lies. It's important to make this point, lest anyone think that God's wrath is only revealed against sexual deviancy, that somehow God overlooks what we have fooled ourselves into thinking are more acceptable idols. This is what we have in our culture today uh, that's so prevalent, these acceptable sins, acceptable idols. Oh, it's okay to worship your favorite athletic team and to give your heart and soul to it. Oh, it's okay to worship your career Oh, that's acceptable. You know, we're in America. We all give each other, we grade each other on a curve on that one, all right? We have these acceptable idols, but none of them are acceptable to God when they displace the Lord in our hearts. So this section is not just about sexual deviancy, but about all that which would replace God in our hearts and in our lives, even the good things. Anything, beloved, please hear this, anything that holds our primary allegiances and affections over God in our lives is an idol. That may be the most important thing that I say this evening in the sermon. Because what Satan wants to do, he wants to undermine our faith and he wants to destroy our piety slowly and subtly and incrementally by us entertaining idols in our lives that we are deceived into thinking are acceptable. But Lord, I have given up all this stuff over here and I've, I've got all these things that have changed in my life and I've got these two or, things, two or three things over here or maybe even just one thing. Sorry, Lord, you can't touch this. Because... Nobody really cares about this. We're all sort of doing it. It's acceptable. And depending on who you talk to, they'll talk about which sins those are. Please hear this. Anything that holds your primary allegiance and affections over God in your life is an idol. That which exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what you have. This is something we always need to be 
careful of and vigilant on is these idols creeping up on our, in our hearts. You know, when I was in India, several times in the mid-90s, I was going in and teaching these moral education classes in this, this, this high school that had 2,500 students, and 80, 90% of the kids were Sikhs, Muslims, and Hindus. And interestingly, when it came to the Hindus, they would readily accept Christ. I would preach Christ to them, and they'd say, oh, this is amazing. Yes, I want to receive Christ. And they would quite literally, at times, get a little statue of Jesus and put it up on their mantle next to Shiva and Vishnu and the various other Hindu gods that they had in their homes. They say, oh, how could they do that? We often find ourselves doing the same thing. Christ will not entertain idols in our lives, nor should we. Martin Luther put it like this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. And dear ones, that can really be something like a car or a sport or a celebrity or a friend or a family and I could just keep going anything God, the, Satan can deceive us with anything to become an idol in our lives and we need to be careful we cannot move on until we consider the question that this test text is asking of each one of us are we exchanging the truth and glory of the immortal God for idols for lies giving our chief affections and energies to the creature rather than to the creator who is blessed forever this is not saying of course that we don't carry out our vocation with passion and and work hard at whatever the Lord has has given to us to do of course but we do it for the glory of God and we're always making sure that the affections of our hearts aren't being subtly drawn away to these things so that one day we wake up and no longer are we in communion with God because we've given our hearts to other lovers. So now, look at God's judgment manifested, verses 24 through 32. Look there with me. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the connection we want to make here. This is a huge connection in this text as it concerns human sexuality. When you exchange the truth about God for a lie, you end up exchanging natural and faithful marriage and sexuality for something else. That's the point. And it happens in every single culture and in every single age this is what we see happening it's why when you see uh, uh, and, and read about the, the, these temples that are set up and there are temple prostitutes that are a part of that temple system when the apostle Paul was writing the book of Romans there were temples in Corinth with a thousand temple prostitutes connected to it we see what idolatry does it perverts sexuality. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We've seen before this threefold use of the phrase, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up in verses 24, 26, and 28. And each time it's, it's used in relation to unnatural sexual practice. What does Paul mean by this phrase, God gave them up? The first thing we should consider is what he's not saying. He's not saying that God totally and completely abandons cultures and nations who persist in their sin, that salvation is no longer even a possibility. No, he's not saying that. As long as a person has breath, there is hope in the gospel. However, it's also true, as revealed in our text, 
that those who persist in unrepentant sin may, according to God's will, be given over to it. To run headlong into sin with no divine restraints. You see, it's only by God's common grace that people are not as outwardly sinful as they could be. Everyone has the capacity to be as bad as the worst person who ever lived on earth. It's only because of the Lord's restraining presence and grace that people are not as bad as they could be. However, what we learn here is that when a stubborn people willfully throw off moral restraints and persist in their wickedness, God, as a part of his judgment against them, gives them over more fully to what it is they clearly want. And that's a part of his judgment. Think of the downward moral spiral of King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel, for instance. And what is especially sobering is that the final giving over is a giving over of a person to hell, to the place far away from God's loving presence, indeed far away from the God who they wanted to be far away from the entirety of their lives on earth. They hate God. They don't want to serve him. They don't love him. They want to be separated from him. They are God-haters. They are enemies of God. And so they are given over to what it is that they want, to be away from him. And they will be away from him forever in hell. Once again, this giving over is a part of the revealing of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And what most characterizes a people who are being given over to their sin, what most characterizes a people who are being given over to their sin, well, a departure from God's design and purpose for marriage and sex and sexuality. Please hear this. Nothing more characterizes a culture or a people that have turned their back on God than bold idolatry which always produces a departure from biblical sexuality. Let me say that again. Nothing more characterizes a culture that has turned its back on God than bold idolatry, which always produces a departure from biblical sexuality. A departure from God's design for marriage and sexuality are almost always related to idolatry. John Stott puts it this way. Quote, a false image of God leads to a false understanding of sex. Illicit sex degrades people's humanness. Sex in marriage between a man and a woman, as God intended, ennobles it. So let's look at the logic of this passage of these three exchanges. Number one, the exchange of the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. Number two, the exchange of truth about God for a lie. And the fruit of those exchanges, exchanging the glory of God for idols and the truth of God for lies, what's the, 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 the result? The exchange, the third exchange, of natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, verse 26. When idolatry is rampant and unchecked, when God is exchanged for lies, God's wonderful and wise design for marriage and sexuality are negotiated and then finally rejected. And let us recognize, dear ones, that those who have embraced not just homosexuality, but also things like pornography, that there is idolatry at the very center of that. God has been replaced by something so that this unnatural expression of godless sexuality, unnatural sexuality, impure sexuality, deviant sexuality has infiltrated one's life. Oh, but pastor, everybody looks at pornography. It's not that bad, is it? Yes, it's that bad. Those are daughters of men. Those are girls who have likely been abused in their lives. And for professing Christian men or women, women to delight themselves and to express their sexuality by, by getting thrills, cheap thrills off of these things. It's an abomination. And we should never, ever say that it's anything different than that. And the fact is, 
It is crippling the church. It is destroying marriages. And if you are here this evening, dear one, and you have gotten caught up in the web and the mess of this, this deviant sexuality called pornography in whatever form it is, tonight is the night to repent, to turn from this sin, and to go to Christ and to throw yourself into his merciful arms and no longer play these games the games that people play in their heads. I have been a pastor for over 20 years, and I have heard about all the games that, that people play in their heads to justify what is clearly an abomination. And it's so often connected to human sexuality. Why does the church look like it does today all around the world? It is primarily because of deviant sexuality, because men, primarily men, are not being men, and they are looking at pornography. And we need to repent in the church of this, this behavior. We need to find accountability. We need to be honest about these things and not to carry on in duplicity because at the very center of this is idolatry. Let no person in this room tonight or whoever may be watching via live, live stream think that one can have a healthy relationship with God and have a deviant, secret, kind of sexual thing going on on the side. It's just not the case. And so it is not the only sin in the world, but it is a massive one that is, that is really affecting uh, the lives of, of God's professing people, his professing children. And so, in verse 24, it says that God gave them up to a kind of general sexual impurity. Then he gets more specific in verse 26 and describes homosexual behavior. Some say that Paul is only condemning uh, certain forms of homosexual behavior here and not all expressions. There are some who would read this and say, well, this is not talking about monogamous homosexual relationships. This is talking about some other kind of thing. That is absolute, ridiculous interpretation of Scripture. It goes against the whole flow of the passage and the connections with God's place as creator and designer of marriage and sexuality. It's a dishonest reading of the text to do this. And of the numerous other texts that clearly communicate that homosexual behavior is a sin and a clear departure from God's holy design. Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent little book on homosexuality, writes this. In Paul's mind, same-sex sexual intimacy is an especially clear illustration of the idolatrous human impulse to turn away from God's order and design. Those who suppress the truth about God as revealed in nature suppress the truth about themselves written in nature. Homosexual practice is an example on a horizontal plane of our vertical rebellion against God. Beloved, many today, even many professing evangelicals, are teaching that a homosexual lifestyle is compatible with Scripture and the Christian life, that God approves of it and wants everyone to be happy with whatever sexual orientation or lifestyle they choose. It's the, the topic of Carl Truman's new book, uh, uh, that there's this kind of expressive individualism and, and sexuality is a part of your personhood. It, it's part of your identity. And so these movements are taking place where people are identifying as, as transgender or bisexual or whatever else. And they say, this is, a, this is just who I am. You are your sexuality. And nowhere in the Bible do we read that. Not at all. Some say that God approves of these things and wants everyone to be happy with whatever sexual orientation or lifestyle they choose. But what we must all understand here this evening is that God's purpose and design for marriage and sexuality are clearly set forth in Scripture, as are the clear departures from that design and purpose. Someone doing exegetical gymnastics to get the Bible to approve of their unnatural sexual behavior. But the plain reading of Scripture tells us the truth. In Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 19 and 20, the Bible clearly teaches that 
homosexuality is unnatural and an abomination. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Interestingly, see the connection there? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 also mentions homosexuality in a list of practices done by the unholy and the profane. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible is not primarily a book about homosexuality. However, it's also not a book devoid of teaching on marriage and sexuality and the sinful departures from it. Another manifestation of the sexual confusion of our days in the transgender movement. It's in our very community. It's in our community. We've seen it recently in the headlines. How a male swimmer has just won the NCAA championships in the women's division. He was somewhere up near 500th in the men's division at the University of Pennsylvania. So he declared himself to be a woman, swam in the women's division, and he won the championship. Surprise, surprise. Right? This is the confusion happening in our own day. Some want us to celebrate this. Should we be okay with affirming a boy who declares himself to be a girl or a girl who self-identifies as a boy? Well, the answer is no, and it would never be loving to affirm or to celebrate that. It would never be loving to do that. The transgender movement is another clear manifestation of mankind's confused rebellion against God, telling God that they were not fearfully and wonderfully made but rather are the opposite sex than what God made them to be. Dear ones, their DNA is gender-specific. Their anatomy is gender-specific. When this swimmer walks through the locker room at the University of Pennsylvania after a swim meet, it's pretty obvious he's a man in every way. You see... People declare themselves to be that which they are not and that which they feel themselves to be. But it's a rejection of objective truth and plain reality and clear reason. It replaces objective reality for the utter subjective. It is held that a person can now declare themselves to be something that they're not. A community which has worked hard to disprove God by objective scientific arguments is now happy to completely ignore human anatomy and what is obvious to all. It's amazing that, that the culture has made the pressure so intense and has been gaslighting everybody so much that we're actually nervous to say, you know, that is actually not a woman. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. that. That's the pressure that's been placed upon us, and we must say, I will not give in to that. And I will in love. Now, I'm not saying you need to walk around, you know, hitting everybody with the big pulpit Bible, trying to make your case. No, we proceed in love. We realize people are caught up in sin, and there are all different kinds of sin, and we want to go with the, uh, the gospel with love and compassion, for we know that there is such a great need. I watched an interview a while back of a, of a man who was growing up in his home, and he uh, was uh, of, of slight frame, and he was uh, um, uh, not athletic, and he was made fun of in junior high, and so uh, he began thinking, well, maybe I, maybe I am a girl like those people that were teasing me. Maybe I am one. So he goes to see the counselor, and the counselor said, yeah, I think you probably are a girl. You need to start taking drugs. And so uh, this person began having surgery after surgery, going through high school, and uh, tried to commit suicide numerous times, had all of these, these surgeries on, on his body as he was trying to self-identify as a woman, and then he met Jesus. <laughs> I was a mess watching this interview. It was amazing. And he began to say, you know, all these adults, they told me all these lies. I needed one person to tell me the truth. 
that I was a young man and I needed to not listen to these bullies on the playground and I needed to look in the mirror and recognize that I am a man and I'm a, I'm a young man and I'm not going to give in to this cultural lie. But nobody did that. In fact, a lot of adults abused him by telling him these lies. And then he met Jesus. And he now is identifying as what he is, a man. His body has changed a lot, but he's still a man. Every part of his DNA says he's a man, and he is a man. And he knows Christ, and he knows the truth by his grace. And all, all can receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And you say, as you interface with various people in, in the culture, and you may interface with a transgender or, or something like that, you, our, 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 our reaction should be one of compassion and love. They need Jesus, amen? Just like you do just like I do. And so we offer them the love and the truth of Christ. But what our community is doing is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's prof causing profound chaos in schools and businesses and locker rooms and showers and athletic teams and, and Olympic events. While the Bible doesn't say anything specific about transgenderism, it does communicate that God made man male and female and that the biological features of males and females correspond to who God made us to be and the roles we are meant to play. Maleness and femaleness are not merely a social construct or a state of consciousness. Maleness and femaleness are very much connected to our bodies God made us to be. Those who are confused about their sexual identity or have gender dysphoria need to receive biblical counsel and prayer. They need the gospel, not affirmation in their departure from what God made them to be and whom God uh, made them to be. Many sentimental arguments are put forth to generate sympathy for those who want to live outside of God's design for marriage and sexuality. And we know that there are genuine struggles and strong feelings that people are dealing with. There may be some in this room who struggle with same-sex attraction while being compassionate. However, we don't want to conform to the spirit of the age. We want to conform to Scripture, to God's truth, to God's blueprint. For only by God's created order will we find true blessing. We must hold fast to the truth. Not only does this glorify God, it gives us the opportunity to reach out to those who are struggling with sexual sin. This leads us to the final point, God's gospel declared. The first part of Romans gives us the bad news. We are sinners, all of us. And before God, we are all equal, equally in need of grace and forgiveness in Christ. But this bad news, of course, leads us to the good news that in Christ there is redemption. In Christ, by grace through faith, there is reconciliation with God. In Christ, we are rescued from God's wrath, from his judgment. In Christ, there is mercy. In Christ, there is salvation from sin and a life of growing holiness. You see, Christ lived a sinless life in perfect conformity to God's law. And then as a perfect law keeper, the righteous one gave himself. He he was delivered up by the Father, and he gave himself willingly on the cross on Calvary. And as he was hanging on the cross, our sins were laid upon him. And God the Father poured his wrath upon him for every sin that we committed, sexual sins included. And Christ died because the wages of sin is death. And he bore the wrath and he died. He paid the wages and the debt of our sins with his very own life. And he went into the tomb for three days. And on the third day, he rose again. And so in Christ, we have victory over Satan and sin, and hell, and death, and in Christ, we have been set free from the reign of sin and death through his righteousness and his life. 
So in Christ, dear ones, we abide. We are united to him. And we have a message of hope for the world. And so, dear ones, let us not cave into or capitulate to or give into or go along uh, with the current of the culture as it concerns human sexuality. May we know what we believe and why we believe it as it is set forth in God's word, as it is clearly revealed in nature, and let us hold fast to that because doing so not only cultivates a healthy spiritual church and godly and healthy marriages, but it also makes places us in a wonderful strategic position to reach out to the world with the truth of the gospel. Amen? And we want to reach out to those who are sexually broken, who are embracing the lies of the world. May we not find ourselves embracing those same lies because then we are not going to be able to reach out at all, nor will we have the desire to. But may Christ rule our hearts, not idols. And may we pursue godliness and obedience to the seventh commandment, not because it... It saves us or we can do so perfectly, but because we want to please the Lord as it concerns human sexuality. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this brief time in your word this evening. Oh Lord, in many ways we've skimmed the surface, even in the past two weeks, as we've considered a positive view of marriage from Genesis 2 and, and also, Lord, a, a departure all the departures from your design uh, this evening as we consider Romans 1. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us, instruct us, convict us. Lord, if there are any here this evening who have been giving themselves to that which is deviant and ungodly and unrighteous, that even today would be a day of repentance and that you'd give us marriages and homes built upon the Savior built upon the truth of your word, that we'd be sons and daughters of light and not dwelling in the shadows and darkness. And may you receive all the glory as we seek to be your faithful witnesses in the world. 